Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is Joao Gomez da Silva, board member at Sogrop. Joao, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I was wondering if you give us a brief overview of your personal history in the wine industry, but also some background on Sobrop. First and foremost, I'm a wine lover. I've been lucky to be brought up as a wine lover from a young age. My family is very much into agriculture and farming, not only my close family, but also my extended family. So a lot of conversations around the table would sooner or later end up somewhere in the countryside and wine would be brought up very often to the table. And then as life went along, professionally, I started by working in food retailing. In the mid-1990s, I was lucky enough to be involved in the development and creation of what by then were the first attempts to bring wine into a more modern stage in Portugal, particularly in modern retailing. This is a period where we discovered a lot of by then young winemakers, which are now established names in the industry in Portugal, and which were brought to the general public for the first time in those commercial initiatives. And then I just drifted away. And many, many years from that time, in 2014, I ended up joining Sograp. And this is a big wine family. I mean, I always kept this wine bug. Once you're contaminated, I mean, there's no way you can exterminate it. And I was lucky enough to live abroad for periods. And I lived in Italy. I lived in Latin America. So I had the opportunity to extend contact with different wine cultures, Argentina, Chile, even South Brazil, Italy, for sure. I lived in England for a while. So I got contact with the other side, you know, the guys that look at wine from the outside, but they cherish it. And I also realized the shortcomings of the Portuguese presence in the wine industry around the world. I mean, Portuguese wine was very much absent from the, the world wine markets. Now, with the exception, and that brings us to Sograp, of Matthews Rosé, right? That quintessential name of the history of the wine industry. Uh, Sograp is a company that we, we like to describe as, on the one hand, a family business, but a family business where we work like a professional team and we like to perform as a professional team. We're very family oriented. We're definitely a family business, but we have a motto, which is that our purpose is to bring friendship and happiness through our wines to all those we touch. And this mix of being a family business, but at the same time, we have a professional attitude towards wine is just a perfect playground to bring that motto into life. And then Sograp has another characteristic. It's perfect blend of what we call a unique combination between great concept wines, Matthews being probably the best example of that, and world-class fine wine estates. I mean, the company was born back in 1942 to trade in Matthews. It was born with the brand. I mean, back in 1942, if you think that someone has thought of Making a Portuguese wine, a rosé above all, that did not exist in the country in those days, and just make it thinking about international markets and in the middle of the Second World War in Europe, that man was crazy. He was not only crazy, I would say, he was a damn visionary. He was incredible. Mr. Fernando Fanzler Ketch, his name, made a historical brand for the industry, for the world industry, which still is hugely dynamic almost 80 years later. And then his family brought the company throughout the decades into the territory of fine wine estate wines, being it in Port and the Douro, or in basically all the major producing regions in the country. And today we are proud of keeping Matthews in its successful trajectory, but also we boast Parcavella, the most iconic Portuguese red wine, or we have Sandman in port, and also the Ferreira Vintage is the oldest vintage seller there is in the industry. So it's a very unique company indeed. I'm curious, Matthias Rosé being from the 1940s, the, I always found the bottle shape to be very unique. And it seems like when the wine was designed with the packaging, that that was something that was thought of right from the start. I'm just curious, even back then, was it in that unique bottle shape? 
It was. It's actually part of the genius of our founder. He thought of a wine that he always believed had to stand out either on the shelf or on the table. So he thought of two things. The bottle shape, which is inspired in the First World War cantil of the soldiers in the First World War, and also of the label. The label, which is the picture of a manor house, the house of Matthews in the north of Portugal. It was thought because he always thought that being Portugal and a known country in those days in the wine industry, it had to give him certain resemblance to a French chateau. And the best picture he had of a French chateau was the manor house of Matthews. That's how the label became what it was. And today it's just an evolution of that same image. And the bottle has always been a cantil until this day. In your duration of looking at Portuguese wine, how's the wine industry in Portugal changed throughout your career? Man, it's a revolution. My first contact with the wine industry as a buyer in retailing dates from the early mid-90s. And in those days, you had an industry which was very traditional. I mean, you had a handful of big houses already. I mean, Sograp was there already. But majorly, you would be talking about very traditional bulk buying companies which would not produce their own grapes. Some cooperatives as well, particularly in some areas of the country. Absolutely no marketing and sales function except for Sograp and a couple of other businesses. An industry that had lived in terms of its international presence out of the Portuguese possessions in Africa. So that's where all the exports would be made to, as I said, with the exception of Matthews. And then in the early to mid-90s, in the aftermath of the accession to the European Union, on the one hand, there was a surge in investment. There was a significant investment of newcomers into the industry, which are now established names, together with some of the traditional names that upgraded themselves. And there was also a surge in demand. There was the beginning of a sophistication in domestic demand, the appearance of modern retailing, where I was employed at that time. And there was both a pull and a push factor in the market. And that was the beginning of the modernization process. And then about 10 to 15 years ago, there was a second push with extremely high levels of investment, a lot of innovation coming into place, which have driven us up to about eight years ago, where the image of Portugal and the perception that the world has gained about Portugal, very much brought by a boom in the tourism sector, radically changed the situation. And I think we're now at a point where the moment for Portuguese wines, if it's not here with us already, it is very close to be with us. And if you now look at the quality of the wines that are produced throughout the country in all its different origins, it's just amazing. The investment that has been made into vineyards and wineries allows us to systematically explore the knowledge and the wealth of tradition and variety that we have, both in grape varieties and, and terroirs, in a situation that we never had before. And this is very much demand-driven as well. It's actually significant that in the last 12, 14 months, the circumstances where all of us have been living without being able to travel and having physical one-to-one contacts, the demand for Portuguese wines from international markets has not diminished. On the contrary, we keep on seeing this, this sort of virtuous circle where more and more people are curious and are demanding about our wines and are interested in discovering what makes us different and what differentiates us from the rest of the pack. So it has been a revolution in so many ways, yes. I'm a huge fan of Portuguese wines, but Portugal's, in terms of diversity, is quite a large range of wines. For this conversation, we'd love to really kind of dive into Alentejo as a wine region, which I think is where you're from originally. Well, (laughs) yeah, the secret, well, hidden. Yeah, part of my family comes from the Alentejo, and being a farming family, we we still own a couple of properties down there, and in one of them, we own own a piece of vineyard. Yeah, absolutely. So I was wondering if you give us a brief overview of Alentejo and its wines. Then we can start to dive into some other more specific questions around what makes Alentejo unique and about the process of selling wines later on in the chat. But just a high-level overview of Alentejo and the critical wines. Okay, well, Alentejo, for those who have never come into contact with it, I mean, Alentejo is the region that is south of Lisbon, the capital. 
it's the area that stands between Lisbon and the Algarve. The Algarve is probably the region that is mostly well-known by the international tourism industry, famous for its beaches. It is for our scale, for the Portuguese scale, it's a rather large region. But if you put it into an American perspective, for example, it's the same area as the state of Maryland. So it's not a huge thing, right? And if you compare it still with Maryland, that has about 6 million inhabitants, I think, the Alentejo as a whole has got 700,000 people living in there. So it's basically a very sparsely populated area. It's essentially a farming area. And it has been like that ever since. In fact, the population of, of Alentejo is more similar to the population of Alaska, if I'm not mistaken, than on any other sort of <laughs> demographic <laughs> area of the U.S. And Alentejo has always been a little bit, it's a frontier area in the sense that it was one of the last regions of Iberia that was dominated by the Moors. The Moors stayed in, in Alentejo, the Muslims stayed in, in Alentejo until the 13th century. So for centuries, it has been a region where occupying forces would come and go. And therefore, there was always this sense of frontier. It's also one of the reasons that plus the climate, which is dry and generally speaking, a warm climate, why the population has always been very sparse. Population would not settle down in an area which was regularly wiped out by battles and armies moving up and down. That has had the effect to preserve that region particularly unspoiled. So it's a pristine region in terms of preservation. Nature is still pretty much what it used to be 2,000 years ago. And everything in the region reflects that. I mean, reflects the fact that it's been preserved, reflects the fact that it's a mosaic of different cultures that have dominated the region. I mean, from the Roman times, we keep the tradition of making wine in amphorae, in clay amphorae, for example. Then the Moorish transformed the region into a cereal-producing industry, but both kept the olive trees. So you've got olive trees that are 2,000 years old. Herdado Peso has a piece of olive tree land that is over 2,000 years old. And so the food reflects that. I mean, it's a food that reflects the fact that you've got very different cultures dominating the space throughout time, and it's generally been a poor area of the territory. So you've got simple ingredients, ingredients that use natural local herbs to flavor. You know, there are no exotic spices coming from the Middle East. Those would be too expensive. You've got parsley and coriander and marjoram and, you know, all the natural herbs that are used as spices in a blend pretty much similar to the way we use grape varietals to build the blends for the Alentejo wines these days. And you use a lot of bread because that was what was, would be made with the cereals that the Moors introduced. I mean, more recently in the 20th century already, in a very ideological approach, the regime, which in those days ran the country, decreed that Alentejo should be the barn of the country. And the wine industry in those days, the wine industry which had been preserved throughout the century, was very much sidelined, right? So you eat a lot of bread, you eat a lot of olive oil, you eat very few meat, you eat pork, if that much, or lamb, which comes from the Moorish, by the way. I mean, not pork, I'm sure. But it's just a scent. You know, the whole thing is very, very, very subtle. So it's a very rich, but a very specific cultural tradition. And that has always marked Alentejo. And the reflection of Alentejo into wine production is very much the reflection of this cultural history. As I said, it starts in the Roman days. Certain practices still come from those days. The most notable is the amphorae, the use of clay. It's a way of preserving the temperature for fermentation in a climate which can reach extremely high temperatures in the summer. I mean, we're talking about over and above 100 degrees Fahrenheit over the summer, but which can become very cold as well. It is also about a region which, although is known as undulated plains and hot summers, it's very, very diversified. We've got eight sub-regions in Alentejo, and which you can get from the northern border of the region, you get the influence of the mountains which border the region, and you get 
cold, wet climate, which produce pretty much mountain area wine growing. And you get complex white wines, extremely complex white wines, extremely old vineyards because it's been very preserved. There's no industrial winemaking there. That's the Porto Alegre subregion. I will not bombard you with names, but I mean, just to give you an example, then you get, for example, the right banks of the Guadiana River. That's the extreme area close to the Spanish border. And this is just about 100, it's not even 100 kilometers, about 70 kilometers south of this northern area that I was just mentioning to you. And you've got extremely arid conditions, very poor soils. Locally adapted grape varieties, Moreto, probably the most famous one, still cultivated in a lot of occasions in pre-Philoxera vineyards, which produce very typical, totally different red wines, no white wines there. This is an extreme region. You go slightly further down, more inland, and you find a couple of, not very high mountains, but the orography allows you for that, a couple of hills that... In spite of your being inland about 100 kilometers, they bring the winds from the sea, they channel the winds from the sea, and together with these chist soils, which characterize that particular area, you've got a region that produces very famous white wines and produces much more elegant wines. Why? Because even if it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit during the day in the summer, the night temperature is extremely mild. So you've got these variations of temperature. So the region is not just one region in the sense that it's got this, again, a mosaic of soil varieties, temperature profiling. You don't use clay amphorae the same way all around the region. There are some producers that produce pure clay amphorae wines, some others in other regions, because that's what's typical from the region, they use clay amphora to season the wine. This notion of seasoning is extremely important in the region. So I'm curious, in terms of grape varieties, is there a mix between international and indigenous grape varieties across the region, or is the region lean more towards indigenous versus international? Alentejo, in the context of the Portuguese regions, is probably a unique region as well in that respect, in the sense that it has preserved a core of native varietals, but because its modern day story of wine growing is a fairly recent one, because as I said, the old regime, the one that prevailed in Portugal until the revolution of 1974, incentivated the region to be a cereal production region. The wine industry in Alentejo was sort of dormant until, as I said earlier on, until the early 80s. Now, that means that all the development that happened after the 1980s allowed for experimentation with international grape varietals, which today, and some of these varietals have only been authorized about 15 years ago, today what you have is a mix of traditional grape varietals. I mean, you've got Aragonese, which is uh, Tempranillo in Spain. You've got uh, Trincadeira, which was extremely important a couple of decades ago, and now it's less important, less so. You've got Moreto, as I told you earlier on. You've got Anton Vash or Arinto in the white grape varietals. So you've got a core of traditional local grapes, very well adapted to the local climate and soil conditions. Toriga Nacional, probably the most internationally known Portuguese grape varietal, which are now used in blends, depending on the producer, depending on the region, with international grape varietals such as Sira, for example, or probably the best example, Alicante Boucher. Alicante Boucher, in fact, and my French colleagues will pardon me for saying that, has found in Alentejo probably a dream terroir to develop, better than the one it has in France. And it has become one of the stars of the region in certain sub-regions, even used in single varietal wines. Some other regions used in blend, for example, with Toriga Nacional. Herdado Peso, for example, makes some of its best wines blending Alicante Boucher and Toriga Nacional. So it's in that respect, it is again the result of a historical evolution, the conditions that have surrounded that evolution, 
uh, which nowadays I think would allow us to say that it's a fantastic example where the blending of tradition with modern knowledge produces a unique result. And in terms of wine styles, you had mentioned, obviously, there's dry wines, red, white, rosé. You mentioned amphora wines. I've seen some skin contact wines. Are there any sparkling or fortified wines in the region as well? No, sparkling and fortified wines, there are experiments, of course, but I would say are not part of the core of the region. Red wines are dominant. White wines have been on the rise, I would say, as well as rosé, but it is still mainly a red wine. Got it. And there's the vinos the Tayas. I don't know how to say it. Taya. That's one of the few regions where it's actually an appellation kind of regulation in terms of what the rules around amphora. I think in most of Europe, I don't know of another appellation that a labeling that has that on there in Europe. But I thought that was quite interesting that and I didn't realize that Portugal had such a history in making amphora wines until about a year ago. Yeah, I mean Vinho de Talha, Amphora in Portuguese it's pronounced Talha. Vinho de Talha has a specific regulation for in Alentejo. It's the only Portuguese region that has one. I'm not aware of other international regions that also may use it. It is really the result of this tradition that comes from the Romans. And you can actually understand it. It's the result of two things. On the one hand, in terms of fermentation, the clay is probably one of the best ways to control temperature in those days, of course. And also in terms of transportation, there are some works from the 18th century, some authors that argue that the wine produced in Alentejo should make the joy of the English gentlemen. Now, in those days, port was already heavily exported to the UK. And Alentejo apparently produced extremely good wines already by then, but there was a huge logistics problem. I mean, Alentejo is an inland area. The uh, sea connections to the UK were not the ones that existed from Porto, very distant. Now, the amphorae were also a good way for transporting the wines. In fact, that used to be the way the Romans would transport the wines back to Rome, right? So the use of talian, it's not just for purpose of fermentation. There's also an issue of logistics there. And so not that many people globally or outside of Portugal, or at least in the U.S., are too familiar with Alentejo wines. What are the key markets for selling Alentejo wines, both in terms of geography or demographics of people? How is it being drunk and what are the sales channels? From a geographical perspective, the national domestic market still dominates. It makes about 80% of the sales, so 20% goes to international markets. Of the international markets, I think we have essentially three groups. There's a market that dominates, and that's Brazil. Brazil responds for 30% of the exports. 70% is the remaining of the market. And then there's a group of countries which each of them makes about 10%, the US being one of them, France, Poland, I believe Switzerland as well. Some of these countries like France and Switzerland reflect partly the importance of Portuguese origin population in those countries. The US, not so much. The US is much more what we call general markets for exports. Poland as well. And then a group of countries which each of them takes more or less 5% of the share. In that case, you have Canada, where there's also an important Portuguese group of people, the UK, Angola, where there are obvious cultural connections, and now more recent China that already joined the pack. I would say it's a varied set of countries with a clear dominance from Brazil, but already with a number of countries where Demand is not driven by Portuguese descendants, but by local population. Now, we usually say that Alentejo wines sell well to what we call the wine explorers and, and hedonists. I mean, the explorers being obviously those that want to explore a something they don't know. We call it the last frontier. The hedonists being consumers which are more knowledgeable. They are more discernible, if you want, in terms of what they look for. And they look either for meals or what we call the me wine, the wine that's for me and not for somebody else. These are wines, as I mentioned, that they're probably not widely available in the U.S. I would say that you can find an entry-level wine from Alentejo at the price point, a reasonable wine for 7 to $9, US dollars, but I would say that the sweet spot is around the $20 price where you can fully explore the terroir and the specificity of that particular producer. This is where the entry-level wine from Hervado Peso is, is positioned. And I think this is with a price quality offer, which is hard to beat. These are typically wines which are fruit-forward, flavor, 
realms where tannins are extremely well integrated and therefore capable of pleasing, as I said, both the explorers which are trying out something new, but also the analysts that are more knowledgeable about what they want for themselves. So in terms of the key marketing messages in your export markets, what are those messages and does it vary by country in terms of how to sell Alentejo wine? No, I think what we have is a unique single message. Now, depending from the geography, the country, I mean, if you go to Brazil, where Portugal is known, Alentejo is also known, you don't have to stress so much the general message about the region. You can jump more immediately into the individual messages from the individual producers. If you're in a market like the US or even the UK, for example, then you have to stress the message of the region, this notion of the last frontier in Europe, a pristine territory, this huge diversity, this result of this mosaic of natural conditions and cultural heritage, this example where authenticity is preserved by using a mix of modern skills and the knowledge of what is the tradition. And also because of the natural conditions with which we have been blessed to receive this notion of sustainability being at the core of what we do. We want to hand over the region and its natural conditions to the future generations, if possible, in a better condition than the one that we have inherited when we got it. And now this is a central message. This is used in all the markets where we have to make Alentejo known. And then on top of that, you have to create your own individuality if you're an independent producer, of course. So in terms of the messaging, I definitely see the consumer side and going to retail, but I haven't seen Portuguese wines as common in restaurants. I'm curious on how your message starts to change when you're trying to target on-premise with Psalms as well as with journalists. Like, How is that a little bit different than the consumer slash retail side? Right. Well, I think there's always a spectrum and the spectrum is the one that you've mentioned. There's a central, let's say, common pitch, which is this taste of the last frontier, I would say. And that's regardless of the audience we're talking about. Now, when you come to the side of the spectrum represented by the buyers, the sommeliers, some of the journalists, particularly the more traditional face of wine journalism, you stress more the detail on the winemaking techniques. And what being the modern side or the traditional side It's more on how to work with the vineyards or how to model the work with the vineyards and the changing in conditions and how you go from one harvest to the next one. And how do you ensure the peculiarities of each year are reflected in the blends and how does that affect the tasting sensation and the pairing? So it's more of a technical approach, if you want to call it like that, to tasting. Whereas when you go particularly into, let's say, more modern face of wine press and the consumers, you definitely have to stress the emotional side and the experience. One thing is a common consequence of a common pitch, which is the fact that you need to have people tasting. We usually say, have them taste us and they'll love it. Have them taste and then they'll go from a wine lover into an Alentejo wine lover, right? And that's common, regardless of where you're standing in the spectrum. And in that respect, I think... Modern days, I mean, if you discount these times of COVID, with on the one hand, the digital world, and on the other hand, this ever closer world in which we live and we're traveling, as I said, I'm discounting the last 13 to 14 months, but where traveling is becoming more and more common, has enabled particularly the individual producers to communicate with consumers on a one-to-one basis, as well as, of course, with the other targets, but with consumers where experience is extremely important. The one-to-one experience between the individual consumer and the estate, the capacity of the estate through either experiences at the estate or through digital means showing itself and giving itself to the experience by the consumer is extremely important. Now, with psalms, with wine critics, with trade professionals, buyers and the likes. We have invested a lot on touring the market, but as well as bringing people into the country and bringing people to experiment the wines and the region in the region itself, because that's unreplaceable. 
there's nothing like experiencing the flavor, the taste, the smell, the temperature, the heat. It's a completely different sensorial experience. And, and in that respect, the sensorial experience needs to be provided regardless with whom you're talking with. But the promotion with the professionals, particularly trade and journalists, we do it at three different levels. A generic level, we do it with the wines of Portugal and the local wine commission, CVRA. They both work the generic brand. They both work at Target. And then individual producers like Sograp, Eduardo Peso, it's its own brand, also invest heavily on that. It's a slow process. It's a process which I believe is now starting to show the first results and it's accelerating because it's a self-reinforcing element. Particularly for the US market, for example, I remember looking at the, the figures for visiting tourists in Portugal in the last couple of years, American tourists, and the numbers were exponentially until, until early 2020. And they will resume, I'm sure about that. I think I have a sweatshirt from my trip there from just a couple of years ago. After this conversation on the podcast, the next step is to be in Alentejo, making a, a second version of the podcast and see how the tone changes when you're there experiencing it, because there is obviously a tone that changes. Yeah. And so it sounds like tourism is one of the ways that Alentejo has grown its markets. What have you experienced as the most effective ways that Alentejo has been able to get its message across, especially if you have any specific examples from Orda de Peso or others? I mean, tourism for the sensorial experience, nothing beats tourism, right? I think both Wines of Portugal and CVRA have invested heavily and with a lot of success in trade fairs, particularly in Europe, Provine, Vinexpo, but also in Asian markets as well, and on professional tours. That has been the strongest way. I think Errado Peso in particular benefited from the fact of being a pioneer in digital means. This is seven years back. Investing in digital media in the wine industry in Portugal was certainly out of the ordinary. And we've been building a community since then. Also, the reaching closer to distribution, particularly for Sograp, who owns its own distribution companies in key markets such as the US, Brazil, the UK. Angola. Now, if you remember, these are all critical markets for Alentejo wines. Being closer to the distribution part of the business has proved to be an extremely important part of success. Ensuring the focus and your fair share of attention of those who are responsible on a day-to-day to show your wines into the market, to transmit what for us is very easy because we can go to Alentejo. I mean, I'm I'm one hour and a half away driving. I can go there still today and be back before dinner. But those who are in the markets and on a daily basis, they have to portray this message and this image. Being close to them is extremely important. And I think that has been critical for Sograp. Sograp also has Herda de Peso in Alentejo. And we haven't really talked about Herda de Peso a little bit, but I'm curious in terms of the ability to market the region versus an individual winery. How are those things collaborative versus how much time do you focus on the individual wineries versus the region at large? The answer is pretty simple. I mean, in the old days where you would only want to talk about Alentejo to the Portuguese consumer in the domestic market, you really didn't need any generic promotion. I mean, the moment we've realized that Alentejo has all this potential to to be brought to the world, generic promotion becomes essential. If you want to effectively transmit the general matrix that defines Alentejo as a region with all the richness and diversity, but at the same time, this common trunk of its cultural heritage and the way culture and nature get transformed into a unique product like the wines from Alentejo, You need generic promotion. You need the scale that generic promotion allows you to have. And the fact that we can do it both through Wines of Portugal and CVRA is definitely a benefit. Then once you've started doing that, it's up to the individual producers like Sograp with its own estate, Herdado Peso, to be able to individualize its proposition, if you want to call it. And then each estate has its own 
history. Each state has its own way of expressing its authenticity. And I think the trick about Verdad do Peso is the way we are able to express our authentic history. I mean, Verdad do Peso is the product of the dream of a family, the Getsch family, over three generations. These three generations started by Mr. Fernando Getsch, who has always been the visionary. He was the son of the founder of the business. He believed his family could come down to Alentejo. His family is from the north of the country. His family could come down to Alentejo and change the Alentejo wine industry. I mean, 30 years ago, we're in the period that I mentioned earlier in this podcast today, that everything was very traditional. You would have the traditional structures in Alentejo, producing wine in the traditional way, not just producing, marketing wine in, in the traditional way. And Mr. Fernando Gadge believed he could actually change things. He could be a pioneer. And the three generations that have followed him have believed in that, have persisted in that dream. And they found an estate, and Herdado Peso is, the essence of Herdado Peso is the result of that dream, the natural conditions of the Herdado, which has an amazing richness in terms of soils and climatic nuances. Being in Vidigueira, it benefits from those cool nights that enables us to produce fresh, vibrant reds with 100 degrees Fahrenheit during the day, but then the evenings just cool everything down. And then our experience and 30 years of research, being in the cultural characteristics of the area, in amphorae, in the way the soils adapted best. 30 years ago, as you can imagine, we started with a selection of grape varietals, which is not the same we have today. We've been perfecting this blend between the characteristics of nature and the ingenuity of man. We have a winemaking team that has worked in the Southern Hemisphere, in the Northern Hemisphere, in the work in Argentina, in New Zealand, the Portuguese, naturally. But they've traveled around the world a little bit like the Portuguese discoverers traveled around the world in the 15th and 16th century. And we were capable of introducing the techniques, the grape variety. We introduced Alicante Boucher which is today one of the most important grape varietals we have in the estate, but we mix it with Toriga Nacional. We have now started changing in a very characteristic way of preserving the natural conditions. We've now started reintroducing ancient techniques of vineyard cultivation that preserve the plants from the heat and from the lack of water. We're going back into these traditional practices and we've blended this in a way we call our winemaking team, our local resident chefs. They have their own spice blend. It's a family recipe. They don't actually reveal it to us. And the essence and the individuality of Herdado Peso within this general matrix is exactly this capacity to mix man's ingenuity, a dream of a family, and the natural conditions we found there. I mean, we do take care of our 2,000-year-old olive trees, right? I mean, do we sell olive oil? No, we don't. But we take them. They were there. They've been passed on to us for the last 2,000 years. Someone has preserved them until they reached our ownership, our possession. Our duty is to pass them to the next generation. And we do this with this sograpiness spirit, we call it in the company. It's this mix of friendship and happiness to bring it to the world. And in fact, the way we've worked out our wines, we've been able to bottle this essence. In fact, one of the wines is called Essencia, which is essence in Portuguese. But we've been able to bottle this essence, transform them into a range of wines. Each one of them expresses a different characteristic of the estate and the different interpretation that the winemaking team makes of the basic ingredients with the spices they have. I always compare this very much with cooking. I'm a food lover. I'm an amateur cook. And I always say you can have the lamb, the bread, the olive oil, the garlic, right? Everybody cooks with the same basics. Now, 
the local resident chef, the winemaker, he has his own spices. The way he uses the minor components of the grape varietal blend. At Herdado Peso, for example, we do not make, at least at the moment, we do not make vinho de talha pure, right? We use clay amphorae, but we use the wines that we make with the clay amphorae to season the wines that we make. So we use that wine as one of the spices. Don't ask me in which percentage it is present in the blend, because it doesn't really matter. That's not what matters. It may matter for a, you know, one of those wine-tasting freaks, right? But it doesn't matter. What matters is that someone has decided, you know, exactly the pinch of salt. I mean, has anyone measured how much a pinch of salt is? <laughs> it's, not, it's a pinch of clay amphora wine. But the truth is, next time you come around to Alentejo in the next edition of our conversation, I'll make you taste a wine that has a pinch of clay amphora wine and a blend that has none. And you'll notice the difference. It's incredible. And so how are the wines of Herdad de Peso marketed or positioned in the market? I think there's multiple ranges, right, of wines. We do have multiple ranges. We essentially have three wines. That's our staple. Let's call it that way. We have an entry-level single-estate wine, which is positioned at around $20 in the U.S. It's the full expression of the estate. It's the full expression of its blending capabilities, of the multiple grape varietals and multiple soils. We've got 16 different soils in 160 hectares of vineyards. We call it the way to fully express the estate, and that's the entry-level one. We have then the reserve, reserva in Portuguese, reserve in English, and the reserve is already the selection. It's a blend of those blocks that have produced the best expression of themselves in that year. But it's still a blend, and it's a blend which is produced to let time take its time to tell us the story. It is a wine which is, when it is marketed, it can be consumed immediately, but it's also a wine that takes time and enjoys time in the bottle. Then we have Essencia. It's essentially a block series. And what we do is we select the best block of each year, sometimes a couple of blocks, usually not more than that. And those are the top blocks of the year. And that's how we come up with Essencia. So Essencia can, in fact, be a completely different wine from one year to the other. Because sometimes it has happened in the first couple of years that the block that best expressed itself in the conditions of that year was one of Syrah. So that was a single varietal. Three years later, in fact, it was a block of Syrah and a block of Alicante Pouché. And it ended up being a Syrah Alicante Pouché blend. It's not the varietal that drives. It's the particular way the block has expressed itself. And this is allowed because the winemakers for the last 20 years have done this relentless work of, call it knowing vine by vine. They actually know what that particular vine can express and they know how to assess it. Now, they use lots of means to assess it. That's where I say technology comes into place, right? Of course. Essentia, we actually claim it's the pure product of nature because it's either nature has given us a very high expression of that block or we don't use it. And it's produced with minimum intervention. It's really the expression of the nature of the estate. And these are the three essential wines. We've got two other wines. One of them we have never yet produced. We've been having goes at it, and which has to express talent. And then we've got Icon. Now, Icon is a wine which has only been produced twice in almost 30 years. I hope, I believe, there's a third one on the way. Uh, Icon is the maximum expression of our essence. It's really only produced in very, very exceptional years. In those years, we apply the highest selection methods to the grapes. I mean, it's not just that it's the best places where they come from that we still select the grapes to the highest level. And we basically, we, we have an expression, we say we declare that wine as a memory for perpetuity. So it needs to be a wine 
that's going to be here with us now and 10, 20 years down the road, it's still going to be here with us. But these are exceptional wines. I mean, the, of course, the estate is also made with them, but the core is the entry level, the reserve and the essential. So I am curious, we've talked about frontier wines a little bit, but Alentejo is on another frontier, and that frontier being climate change. I get to have the opportunity to interview a lot of producers, and it always comes up where people ask about these cool regions in Burgundy and Germany about climate change, and they're like, yeah, it's only helping us ripen our grapes. But Alentejo was already a hot location and fairly arid and suffered from drought frequently. I'm curious on what measures are wineries taking to defend against climate change in Alentejo? Well, not being a technician, which I'm not, I'm a, a marketeer and a wine lover. I think it is a tough equation, but it's certainly not a difficult one in the sense it's simple in what you need to achieve, right? You need to maximize the protection of the plants and the fruit vis-a-vis heat and water scarcity. Now, that means you need to adapt all your practices at the vineyard, because this is pretty much happening at the vineyard, right? So you need to adapt your practices at the vineyard, sometimes recovering ancient methods. We've recovered the, for example, the Goblet conduction method right now. We started the adaptation. We've made profound changes in the way we allow the leaves to cover and protect the fruit. We're experimenting. I mean, we've never stopped experimenting, but in the last five or six years, we're experimenting with grape varietals that typically in the region were actually used exactly in extreme weather conditions. And we have been blessed with the Alkeva Dam, which is Alkeva is the name of the dam. It is the biggest artificial lake in Europe. And the whole region, and the Rado Peso is not an exception, has developed practices to use water not to maximize production, that is not the intent, but to protect the plant against extreme weather episodes, right? We use the water for that purpose and not really to increase production. We also have, as I said, in Tidigator, we do benefit from the fact that the nights are much cooler than the standard. We have also adapted the time of the day when we do treatments, when we do irrigation, when we do grape picking. So everything is adapted towards minimizing the negative impacts that climate change may have or is having. The other thing we've done, and Alentejo has in general always been very awakened to that, is that we do take a lot of care in terms of sustainable production methods. And we have an extensive agenda. Some of them are already initiated. Some of them are on the pipeline of programs to preserve not just the estate itself and all its biodiversity. We've got our natural, well, it's man-made, but our natural water sources. We've got our dam to preserve water, the years where water can be preserved and therefore have a more even water availability source. And we've got not just programs for the estate itself, but also for producers that work together with us or for the local communities. So sustainability has become a core part of our agenda. Great. Thank you, Joel. For every guest, we like to ask them about a lasting trend and a fizzling fad. So in the context of Alentejo wine, what do you think is a lasting trend that's been around and going to continue to grow over time or a fizzling fad, something that's popular today, but maybe fading away? Hmm, that's a difficult question. Listen, I think a lasting trend, but I'm not sure if this is original for Alentejo, a lasting trend is really making our wines with this minimum intervention possible and letting nature express itself as much as possible in a very natural way, if I may put it that way. And that is at least certainly what we search for in Nevada Peso. And I think with everything that we've talked about, climate changes and everything, this is the only way to go forward. That plus the respect for traditions and authenticity, I think is something which is here to stay and it's going to be here to stay for the centuries to come. So that one is for sure. Things that are fizzling fad or that may prove themselves to be a fizzling fad, I have to say that I struggle to see something that we do now. I do recognize things that we used to do 
and they don't seem to make any sense anymore. And you look back and you say, Jesus, how could I do that? You know, I think we used to make use of wood in a very clumsy way, right? And that is certainly something that has faded. I mean, the sophistication in the way that we use wood in the aging process, the way wood is actually blended into the wine is a completely different thing. So the ways things used to be, that is definitely, that has sense of past and every time we see a wine which is still there we sense it doesn't belong to today that's trincadeira as a grape varietal which used to be very dominant in alentejo it's a victim of history in that respect it has also faded it's still there it still exists but it's a sign of times where production and volume of production used to be a critical variable and therefore maybe some things which were done thinking about that but also something which is fading there was a moment in history in Alentejo, also part of its historical production, the way production used to be organized. I'm talking back in the 1980s and 1990s. I'm probably getting old because I can still talk about 1980s and early 1990s as things that just, you know, just around the corner. There was a lot of focus in Alentejo and entry-level wines. That has shifted dramatically, dramatically. I mean, they're still out there. I mean, entry-level wines exist everywhere in the world. But they've certainly lost their place in what the core of an Alentejo wine offer is, for sure. Wow, those are some great takeaways and great examples. Thank you for sharing those. Joao, Peter, I want to thank you for spending so much time walking through Alentejo and Herda do Peso. Very educational and very interesting to hear how these wines have changed throughout time as the marketing and the consumer awareness has become possible. And again, now that you said Brazil as a key market for Portuguese wine in general, but for Alentejo, it totally makes sense. I wouldn't have put the two and two together, but now Brazil keeps popping up in all of our interviews. They're clearly a voracious wine community that I just didn't know that much about before we started doing the podcast. But thank you for your time. We appreciate you joining us and sharing your insights. Robert, Peter, thank you very much. You know that you're invited to join us as soon as air travel resumes. All the listeners of the podcast are also invited to join us as soon as they can, as soon as conditions allow for it. And if you need anything else, you know where to find us. Thank you very much for both of you. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.